In this episode, Christopher Kinzinger talks on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and afterwards we have a discussion on the topic. I hope you enjoy this talk and the discussion afterwards. Hi, I'm Christopher Kinzinger. I'm a lawyer in Ontario and an LLM student at McGill University's Faculty of Law. What I want to do today is to give you an overview of how the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms works, sort of a Charter Law 101. Most of us in Canada know what the Charter is, we learn about it growing up in school, and we often hear it discussed in the media, and yet the Charter has continued to be a source of confusion, not just for non-lawyers, but also for lawyers. And that's not surprising, because it's a complicated and very nuanced piece of constitutional legislation. So what I hope to do today is to maybe clear up some of the uncertainty and the confusion about what the Charter actually is and how it actually impacts our day-to-day lives. I'm going to start by situating the Charter within the scope of Canada's broader constitutional architecture and to really define for you why it exists in the first place. From there, I'm going to go on and talk about who is subject to the Charter. In other words, what are the entities whose actions are constrained by the Charter's provisions? After that, I'm going to talk about a few of the rights and freedoms that are guaranteed by the Charter. I don't have time to go into each and every provision because there are several, but I'm going to focus in on three of the ones that I think are the most important. And finally, I'm going to talk about whether the Charter's protections can be limited or overridden, and crucially, what the difference is between limiting and infringing the Charter. So let's start by talking about the broader Constitutional of Canada. Now, most of us know that the Constitution of Canada formally began in 1867 with the enactment of what we now call the Constitution Act, 1867, but which was originally known as the British North America Act. And that is indeed where the source of the constitutional text begins. But the preamble to the Constitution Act, and we're going to get into what a preamble is in a minute, but what the preamble says is that Canada shall have a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. What some legal scholars have taken that to mean is that we can go back to constitutional history prior to Confederation and even back into British constitutional history to understand the Constitution better. That we can go back to as far as events and uh, documents as Magna Carta to get a fuller appreciation for the rights and freedoms that are guaranteed by the Canadian Constitution. This does not mean that, for example, the Magna Carta is part of the constitutional text per se but simply that it helps us understand the guarantees that are explicitly and implicitly contained in the Constitution better. Beyond that, the main thing that the 1867 Act does is set out a division of legislative powers. It assigns certain authority to the federal parliament, and it assigns other authority to the provinces. Let's fast forward a bit to 1982. By this point, the Canadian Constitution is still technically an act of the British Parliament, which meant that any time that Canada wanted to amend the Constitution, it had to go to the British Parliament and request an amendment. This was clearly not tenable for an independent, sovereign nation in the late 20th century. And so what uh, the federal government did, led by Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, was it began this process of patriation, of essentially making the Canadian Constitution an act of Canada, of Parliament and the legislatures. 
But what it also did is it enacted a new section of the Constitution called the Constitution Act 1982. And there are two important parts to this Constitution. The first is the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which we're going to get into in just a moment. And the second is the guarantee and reaffirmation of numerous Aboriginal rights. The Charter, or rather the 1982 Constitution Act, did not create Aboriginal rights, but it did, again, reaffirm and cement many of these in a very important way. And we can see this as a very important moment in the history of the relations between uh, the federal parliament and the provinces and Canada's First Nations. So let's go to the Charter now. We're going to start with the Charter's preamble, and I said that we would talk about what a preamble is. We need to re uh, recognize that a preamble is not actually an enforceable part of a legal text. It's essentially a sort of signaling device that a legislature uses to give an indication to, to courts or other institutions that are going to interpret the law what their intentions were when that law was made. In other words, why are the provisions that follow there? This is what the Charter's preamble says. Whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Let's stop there. There's a lot to unpack. We're going to work backwards. The rule of law, what is that? There's been a lot that's written about the rule of law. We don't have time to go into all of its different uh, facets and nuances, but I'm going to say there are three main things that we need to understand about the rule of law. First, it means that laws have to be coherent. They have to be understandable. They have to be inconsistent with one another. Or rather, sorry, they need to be consistent with one another. That's what a constitution basically is. It's a supreme law with which all other laws must comply. Second, the rule of law means that laws must be publicly accessible. If we're going to follow the law, we have to know what the law is. And third and finally, it means that we are governed by laws, not the wills uh, and the whims of individual rulers. And so within the context of the charter and a constitution, this means that the state's authority is constrained and limited. And what the charter does and the rest of the constitution is it sets out how the state is to exercise its authority. It's been said to be both prescriptive in that it's supposed to be some uh, a positive thing that the state uses to proactively ensure that it is acting in a manner that is consistent with the values that this nation was founded on, but it's also remedial. And where the Constitution is violated, individuals and litigants can go to the courts to seek various types of relief. There's another phrase that we see in the preamble of the Charter, and that's the supremacy of God. And that might surprise some of us to see that there, because a lot of us have been led to believe that Canada is a secular nation. And I don't think it's correct to say that Canada is a secular nation per se, but what we can recognize is that Canada is a nation founded on a principle of religious neutrality. What the Supreme Court of Canada has said that means is that the state is to neither favor nor disfavor any particular religion or belief. That would seem to be in, uh, um, inconsistent here with this reference to the supremacy of God. But what some legal scholars have said is that the supremacy of God is actually a recognition of a sort of secular humility to affirm that rights and freedoms do not begin with the Charter. Their source is not found in the Charter, it's found elsewhere. The Charter simply recognizes and affirms their existence. 
And we can actually see this in section 26 of the Charter, which says that the guarantee in this Charter of certain rights and freedoms shall not be construed as denying the existence of any other rights or freedoms that exist in Canada. So one, this means that it's possible that other rights and freedoms may be guaranteed by other legislative uh, provisions and instruments. So for example, we have human rights legislation in Canada and in the provinces that guarantee rights and freedoms that are not found in the Charter. But what I think Section 26 is also getting at is that rights and freedoms did not begin in 1982 with the Charter. This isn't really supposed to be a controversial argument. We can go back into uh, constitutional history in Canada prior to the Charter's enactment, and we have uh, whole bodies of case law that, for example, affirm the existence of freedom of religion or freedom of expression. And so what this again recognizes is that the Charter is important, but we can't look at it as the only source of our rights and our freedoms. Who does the Charter apply to? Section 32 of the Charter says this, the Charter applies, A, to the Parliament and Government of Canada in respect of all matters within the authority of Parliament, and B, to the legislature and government of each province in respect of all matters within the authority of the legislature of each province. That's a bit of a mouthful. What does that mean? It means two main things. First, it means that the Charter applies to all laws that are passed by the federal parliament and the provincial legislatures. But second, it also means that it applies to any individuals or entities or bodies that receive their authority from the, uh, the federal parliament and the provincial legislatures. Canada is a very vast country, and it's impossible for parliament and the legislatures to oversee everything. They can't do it all. So what they do is they delegate some of their authority to certain decision makers to pursue the policies that they have enacted. And sometimes they give them broad discretion to decide how to pursue those policies. This is an area of law we call administrative law, and it's closely tied to how we understand constitutional law. What Section 32 also means, though, is that uh, courts cannot, strictly speaking, violate the Charter. Now, this is not to say that courts are not bound by the Charter. They are. The constitutional role of the courts is to interpret and apply the Constitution. But that means that it's a bit of an oxymoron to say that the, uh, that the court can actually violate the Charter. So the court needs to be very careful when it's looking at the Charter or the rest of the Constitution and determining how to apply it and how to interpret it. But it means that ultimately when its decision is made, we don't say that that decision can violate the Charter, even if we don't always agree with the decisions that the courts come to. So let's move on and let's look at three important rights and freedoms that are guaranteed by the Charter. The first are equality rights, which are guaranteed by Section 15. And this is what Section 15, subsection 1 says. Every individual is equal before and under the law and has the right to the equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination, and in particular, without discrimination based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. This is, again, a very long uh, provision. It, got, it has a lot of words contained within it. What does it mean to say that everyone is entitled to the equal benefit and equal protection of the law without discrimination? 
What the Supreme Court has said is that this applies to discrimination that is both discriminatory in its object, that is to say it's intentional discrimination, and discrimination in its effects, which may be unintentional discrimination. That may rub some people the wrong way, but there ought to be examples of effects-based discrimination that we can all recognize. And I'll give you one brief example. Let's say that the federal parliament was to amend the Elections Act such that federal elections were now always held on Sundays, and it did not provide any other opportunity to vote either in advance or by mail-in ballot. So people can only vote on Sundays. Now, the result of that would be that a lot of people who observe uh, the Sabbath on the Sunday, including many Christians, would not be able to participate and vote in federal elections if their conscience was so bound that they did not feel that it was right for them to uh, uh, depart from their day of rest and go vote. Again, the purpose of that law would not be to prevent these individuals from voting, but that would in fact be the effect. And so we could make an argument there that the law is discriminatory in its effects. Another provision of the Charter that's important is Section 7, which guarantees the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And this is what it says. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. I'm not going to say too much here. That last clause, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, some scholars have interpreted as meaning that originally, Section 7 was designed primarily to be used as a sort of legal right to constrain the state in matters where it's exercising its coercive authority. Uh, the Supreme Court has since held that it's, it's actually much broader than that, and in some cases can even place positive obligations on the state where its actions might otherwise endanger life. We can uh, reasonably disagree with uh, whether we agree with that interpretation or not, but I do think there is uh, some basis in which Christians can recognize that this ties back to the state's God-given authority, which we can trace back to, to the Noahic Covenant, to not only avenge, but conversely, to protect life as well. Finally, we have the fundamental freedoms guaranteed by Section 2, and this is what Section 2 says. Everyone has the following fundamental freedoms. A, freedom of conscience and religion. B, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication. C, freedom of peaceful assembly. And D, freedom of association. We have ample case law on some of these provisions, such as uh, freedom of religion, freedom of, of expression, and freedom of association. But we also uh, don't have a lot of case law on others. We have some case law, for example, on freedom of conscience and freedom of the press. But we have almost no case law uh, from either the lower courts or the Supreme Court on freedom of thought, belief, and opinion, freedom of peaceful assembly, or even some of the other aspects of freedom of association that don't relate to uh, labor rights. And one of the things that we see sometimes said in the mainstream press and even in Canadian case law is this idea that rights can be competing with one another. I don't agree with that characterization that rights compete with one another. The Supreme Court has said that there is no hierarchy of rights. So what does that mean, though, when rights are intention? And we can certainly say that rights can appear to be intention with one another. I think it's the way that we need to look at these things is we need to ask ourselves, 
how do we interpret these rights and freedoms holistically? How do we interpret them in light of one another? And that means that certain rights and freedoms won't exactly be more important, but conceptually, they will be more foundational. And I would say that Section 2 is one of those foundational guarantees in the sense that you cannot have a meaningful guarantee of the right to life, liberty, and security of the person or uh, meaningful equality rights unless you first have a meaningful guarantee of fundamental freedoms. This is to say that the fundamental freedoms are the necessary ingredients for a flourishing free and democratic society. But we all know that charter rights and freedoms are not limitless and that there are numerous occasions in which they are in fact subject to limitations. We've seen this in numerous occasions throughout the pandemic. Right now, uh, in many parts of the country, churches are unable to either meet at all or to meet in the same sizes that they previously did prior to the pandemic. Why is the government allowed to do this? The answer is found in Section 1 of the Charter, which says that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So again, we see that idea there of being prescribed by law. Canada is a nation that is governed by law. But what does it mean for a limitation to be demonstrably justified? There are a number of questions that the courts will ask when answering that. We don't have time to go through all of them in detail. I'll highlight just a few. The first is that the state needs to be pursuing a pressing and substantial objective. That's usually pretty easy for the state to demonstrate, but sometimes there is some disagreement over whether a law's objective is in fact pressing and substantial. The second thing that we ask uh, is whether that right or freedom is minimally impairing. In other words, is it possible for the state to achieve its pressing and substantial objective in a way that would restrict the charter protection in question to a lesser degree, right? So we're asking, for example, uh, with uh, pandemic restrictions on assemblies, we would ask, is it possible to have lower case counts without requiring uh, private in the, um, private gatherings to cease or religious gatherings to cease? Is it possible that, for example, we can see partial gatherings allowed while still seeing these case numbers go down? And in fact, in many parts of the country, we have seen that where there are partial limitations, but not complete limitations. And finally, the, the, the last question that we ask is about proportionality, which is basically just asking, is the cost that is imposed on the rights claimants worth the benefit that is to be achieved? And again, going back to the pandemic example, what we might expect here is that even if the benefit to be achieved right now does outweigh the cost, as time goes on, if those policies work, then we should expect the balance to shift as the cost increases and the relative benefit decreases because case numbers continue to go down. And finally, there's one last peculiar provision in the Constitution I want to talk about, and that's overriding charter guarantees. Section 33 of the Charter says that Parliament or the legislature of a province may expressly declare in an act of Parliament or of the legislature, as the case may be, that the act or provision thereof shall operate notwithstanding a provision included in Section 2 or Section 7 to 15 of this Charter. So what that effectively does, it's a very peculiar provision in the Canadian Constitution that really doesn't have any analogous provision in other constitutions or international human rights law. 
is it allows the uh, governments in Canada to effectively act as if the charter were not there, to enact a law that would otherwise limit the charter in a way that is not justified. And this is where we need to understand the difference between limitation and infringement. When we say that a charter protection has been limited, it may not infringe the charter because Section 1 allows for limitations that are justified. Where it's not justified, we would say that the limitation violates the charter. So the charter has been violated. Section 33 allows for these violations to take place in certain instances. And one area where you see this right now is with legislation in Quebec called Bill 21, an act respecting the laicity of the state. And essentially what this bill does is it prohibits certain public employees from wearing religious symbols while on the job. Now, normally, we would expect that such a bald and blatant limitation of religious freedom and the right to equality to be struck down as not justified. But the Quebec legislature, anticipating litigation, preemptively invoked Section 33, such that now the law may be able to survive. That's an open question. We'll see. The trial has taken place at the Quebec Superior Court, and most observers expect that eventually it will work its way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. So let's just briefly recap. We talked about how our rights and freedoms are subject to limitations, how those limitations may not actually result in a violation of the Charter. And this is the tension that we're feeling right now throughout the pandemic. We've talked about how complicated constitutional law is and how we would all do well to avoid oversimplifying these things and to not run from the nuance and difficulty that these questions pose. And I think what we can recognize ultimately is that as Christians, we are subject to these laws. Uh, Romans 13 tells us to submit to governing authorities. But we can also recognize that God is the ultimate source of our most important rights and freedoms because we are made in God's image. And we should take advantage of the legal rights and freedoms that we have. But we can look to the example of individuals in Scripture, such as Paul, that our rights and freedoms exist to edify others. And when we exercise them, they should be for the edification, not just of the church, but but non-Christians as well, so that ultimately, as Christians, we might glorify God. Thank you. Uh, so we're here now to talk about a little bit about the Charter of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, Chris had a talk about it. So can you briefly just kind of summarize your talk? And then I'm going to ask you a few questions about it, because I'm curious as sort of a, a legal lay person, there's a lot of things I'm ignorant about, and I would be happy to learn from you. Yeah. So basically, in my talk, I just walked through four questions to just uh, kind of summarize, you know, um, how the charter works and what it is, because I think a lot of Canadians assume they know how the charter works. A lot of lawyers assume they know how the charter works, um, but they don't necessarily. Um, so just kind of as a start, what is the charter? It's a part of our Constitution. Uh, it's part of the 1982 Constitution Act, which is the second main body of the Constitution. The first was uh, the uh, the 1867 Constitution Act, also known as the British North America Act, uh, and it lays out uh, several rights and freedoms that are guaranteed uh, to citizens of Canada, but also non-citizens who are within Canada as well. Uh, the Charter binds the government. It doesn't bind private individuals, so it's made to constrain government authority. Uh, its, its guarantees are quite broad. Uh, the ones that I talk about in uh, my talk, which I think are probably the arguably the most important are the fundamental freedoms in section two, 
uh, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person in section seven, and equality rights in section 15. Uh, but what makes the charter so unique is that it has these two provisions, which you don't often see in other constitutions. So first there's section one, which says that rights can be limited, uh, subject to demo uh, demonstrably justified limitations in a free and democratic society. And then there's section 33, which is just a weird beast altogether, because it allows <laughs> governments to just basically say, we don't care about the charter. Uh, we are going to pass this law, notwithstanding the charter uh, for a period of uh, five years. Um, that doesn't apply to the whole charter. It, it applies only to section two and section seven through 15. So as we get going, then I think one of the most basic questions to ask, and, and this is, we're, we were just talking about this, how does this, does our charter differ from like the US constitution? I feel like every movie, TV show, everyone you talk to, we have the right to bear arms, the right to assemble. Um, how, how do they differ? Yeah, huge difference. I mean, so it's often said that um, the American constitution is primarily a written constitution. The text is, is paramount. And then the British constitution is an unwritten constitution. And then Canada kind of falls somewhere in between. We have written aspects of our constitution and unwritten aspects. So in some ways, our constitution goes all the way back to Magna Carta, basically the start of the British constitution. Because the preamble to... Okay. We just had a, a technical dropout there, but Chris, you're, I was asking you the question about like, how, do we, how does our charter differ from the US constitution? So go ahead. So it's, yeah, they're very different. And, and broadly speaking, you'll often hear it described this way. The US constitution is primarily a written constitution and, and the written text is, is not only paramount, but that's basically the source of all constitutional obligations. The British constitution is primarily unwritten. And so it has evolved through convention uh, and, and practices and these things. And then the Canadian constitution is kind of a hybrid. We, we have written constitutional text and we have a schedule in the constitution that enumerates the, the textual sources of the constitution. But in another sense, it's also unwritten because being uh, at the time at, of confederation, we went from being a, a colony of Great Britain to not quite a full independent nation. Uh, a, a dominion was the term that was used at the time. And so in that respect, the preamble to the 1867 Act says that Canada shall have a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom, which means that we can trace a lot of these things all the way back to Magna Carta, which is arguably the inception of the British constitution as well. Uh, that's not to say that you can quote and incite the Magna Carta in Canadian litigation. Some people try to do that, you can't do that. Uh, the Magna Carta is not a part of our constitution, but it's a part of that historical backdrop of what we inherited from Great Britain. So the charter is, is part of the 1982 act. And it was part of this process of patriation where uh, led by Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and the provinces uh, essentially made the constitution an act of Canada and not an act of the British parliament. And one of the most significant parts of that was the charter. And before that we had no bill of rights or charter of rights contained in our constitution. Uh, many will remember the Bill of Rights, which was an act of parliament passed in 1960 by the Diefenbaker government, but that was not actually constitutional text and the courts mm. uh, declined to apply it as if it were. So the charter ushered in this whole new paradigm where we now had these enumerated rights and freedoms that could be asserted against the government through litigation. 
Hmm. Now, let me ask you a question badly so you can correct me. Um, tell me about our fundamental religious rights in Canada. Right. So this is a really interesting question. And I would say that there are two, um, there are two protections in the charter that speak to that. But I would say that this is where constitutional history is important because uh, these protections are not, I believe, the original source for religious rights. So the charter guarantees freedom of religion in section 2A, which basically means that you have the freedom to, be, uh, to live out your faith uh, absent uh, coercion or constraint. Obviously, that is also subject to reasonable limits, which I discussed in my talk, and I'm sure we'll get into in a moment, but it's not an absolute freedom. And then you also have section 15, which guarantees the right to equality and the right to be free from, uh, sorry, not free from, but the right not to be discriminated against on a number of grounds, uh, including religion. Now, I say that both of these protections arise out of this underlying principle of the religious neutrality of the state. And that did not begin with the charter. We can trace this back throughout our constitutional history. We have pre-charter case law that essentially affirms the existence of religious freedom and religious equality. And you can go all the way back to the 1867 Act, which had guarantees of denominational school rights for minority denominations in the provinces. And in a way, there is an mm -hmm. aspect of religious neutrality embedded there because the state is essentially ensuring that it did not favor any one denomination. And again, you can just keep going back in history. You can go back to the end of the Seven Years' War in uh, the late uh, 18th century, and you can see uh, how uh, there was uh, a religiously neutral oath that was granted to Catholics so that they would be able to serve for in legislative councils and in courts and all of these things, whereas before uh, they would have had to have sworn an oath that basically required them to denounce the authority of the Pope. Hmm. Always something fun. Um, uh, before I, I'm going to ask, I want to ask one more question. Chad, <laughs> do you want to jump in there and say anything? You kind of have a, a different background you know, than I do. I, I, I was just going to say, just sort of piggybacking on what Chris is saying there. Maybe Chris, you might have a, some feedback on this, but just in general, again, a bit of a difference from the U S as well, that much of what we experience in Canadian law is judge made law. It's common law. It's historical precedent. And that even impacts what's going on in the charter so that we have key cases that come along and kind of change the way we look at things. It'll re mm -hmm. reinterpret a section of the charter and, and maybe add a, something unenumerated to what has been enumerated. Um, and I don't know if you looked at anything recently that's that's come up or not, but one of my concerns with, with all things going on today with churches is a concern that we bring up um, bad circumstances that create bad case law in the way that it interprets the charter and then the right shifts. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. But. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, certainly one of the big paradigm shifts with the charter is our courts became relatively more powerful than they were before because there were now a whole uh, slew of new ways that courts could strike down legislation as being unconstitutional and that's i'm not commenting on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing that's just a thing that happened um, but it does mean that i think as christians we need to be very wise about how we pursue litigation and sometimes i think there's a tendency to rush in and to want to assert our rights and assert our freedoms uh, as the church, as Christians, because we, you know, we're fighting this righteous fight. 
But if we go back to scripture, you know, when, when Paul asserted his rights as a Roman citizen, he did so very intentionally and with careful thought, and he did it to edify mm. the church and to edify the broader culture. And I think we would, as Christians in, in Canada in 2021, would do well to be very mindful of when we are asserting our rights and our freedoms and to think, am I going to set a bad precedent here? Because a bad precedent is worse than no precedent at all. And, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, we look at these other developments, uh, you look at the way, for example, medical assistance and dying was essentially ushered in through litigation in Canada. And the, the legal team that brought that challenge was so skilled in how they did it. And, and it was quite the, the submissions that they made uh, in, in some ways were quite brilliant to, to usher in such a radical policy change. Hmm. But that's because they knew how to build their test case. And I think as Christians, sometimes we're still struggling to figure out how do we build our test cases that are going to help us. The one thing I want to get at before we finish this is um, something that's probably really relevant to a lot of people today. It's the distinction between... Uh, infringing rights and limiting or freedom sorry infringing freedoms and limiting freedoms and so maybe to uh, get a <laughs> i'll get whatever i'm the i'm the non-lawyer i can get it all wrong right you can correct me um the thing i'm very curious about is like we have during the time that we're living in right now a lot of restrictions across the board everywhere whether you're a business an individual any kind of group who's assembling so in what ways is it appropriate what ways does the uh, government have the right to restrict assembly of Christian churches? And when does it, do you think, when does it get to the point where maybe there's an infringement yeah. made? And you guys can both answer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I like that distinction. Um, there, I think there is a distinction between rights and freedom. It's, uh, it's a technical one. Okay. So recording again. So Chris, you were talking uh, before we had some difficulties, but you were talking about the distinction between infringement and limiting freedom. So go ahead. Yeah, um, I, I think you kind of picked up on a, a good distinction there as well that there's a difference between a right and a freedom, and uh, it, it, it's a technical one, and it's one that hasn't you know that's only now being kind of teased out in uh, legal scholarship. Uh, but but essentially, uh, freedom is very broad, and it's about the absence of coercion and constraint, and so. When you assert a freedom, you're, you're returning to a status quo where you're free to act or not act. Uh, a right is somewhat different. A right is when you are being put usually into a situation by uh, some actor, usually the state, uh, that, that is harmful or detrimental to you in some way. And so when you assert a right, you, you're stopping the state um, from, from doing something that harms you. But when you assert mm -hmm. a freedom, you're trying to return to this position uh, where you have this uh, relative autonomy in terms of, of how you act. But that's the interesting thing about the charter, going to your question about limitations, is that it has this mechanism, section one of the charter, that allows for uh, limitations to be placed on rights and freedoms, where doing so is demonstrably justified. So demonstrably means that it has to be on the basis of evidence. The government can't just be speculative and say that we're going to limit this right or freedom because we think, you know, in our assessment, it's a good idea. They have to walk through a very uh, specific series of questions using evidence to show why that is uh, a justified limitation. But I talk about this in my talk as well. There's also this weird provision of the charter called section 33, which is quite 
uh, unparalleled in other constitutions, which lets the government basically just declare that it's going to pass legislation, notwithstanding certain parts of the mm -hmm. charter for a period of up to five years. And that five year period can be renewed. And again, in human rights law, this is a weird thing because uh, the government doesn't have to give any kind of justification at all. It can just basically say, this is what we're doing. Um, so I think we need to be alive to the difference between section one and section 33. Section one is, uh, I think, a, actually a very good idea um, because it allows for case by case limitations to be made and you don't come up with these kind of artificial uh, internal restrictions on the right or freedom. Section 33, on the other hand, there may be some cases where its use is legitimate, uh, but it will be few and far between. And, and I think we would do well to avoid its use. Yeah. Chad, you had an observation? Well, I, I was just going to say, and it just really flows from that in light of, um, in light of what's happening today. I, I wonder, because this will be the first opportunity, I think, since the charter has been in, that we have an extended period nationally where we have all of these emergency measures acts that are engaged. This was previously done during wartime, of course, and that's how we were able to justify uh, all kinds of things. But when, a, when an Emergency Measures Act is in place, what it does is it temporarily suspends the, the order of society with the purpose that if the temporary suspension isn't done, the actual order will collapse forever. So there's an invading army coming in. Temporarily, I can make everybody stay home in their houses and turn their lights off because we can't afford to lose the entire town to bombings. When a pandemic comes in, temporarily, I can take away all of your freedoms because if I don't, there won't be anyone to come out the other side. That's the kind of justifications that go into it. And I wonder in light of, of, of um, the test for section one and the justifiable infringements, how, how I think some of the stuff is gonna be challenged heavily over the next couple of years. But I wonder as churches, just as a more general thought, how much we think very, very carefully, Chris pointed out, how well the maids laws were introduced by very careful test cases and being very well thought out. And I wonder if there is opportunities now for some very careful and conscientious thinking about, um, about Christian freedoms, or general freedoms, religious freedoms, but specifically for the church to think through how it's going to respond now, because it might have a huge impact as this is the first opportunity we have to really measure that. Mm. Well, there's a lot of fun well, things. And, and I'll, I'll add to I'll just add a final thing to Chad. Um, like you said, Chad, there is litigation that has come out as a result yeah. of the pandemic. And I think it's fair to say we've some, seen some litigation that's more compelling and some that's <laughs> less compelling. And I think churches uh, that currently aren't engaging uh, in litigation and, and uh, may not be engaging in civil disobedience, but may have concerns about the constitutionality of some of these orders, they need to really ask themselves, is this... Uh, a time and a place where we can step up as litigants. Can we join together as co-parties and, and bring a joint charter challenge against this? And we can make that compelling case. Uh, and I think if, if they don't, then we're going to see some of the less compelling cases come forward. Mm -hmm. And that could be problematic and set negative precedents down the road. Yeah, mm. that's good. Thanks for the discussion, guys. That was helpful.